0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Hello there. Um, This today is Mark Green. I'm the medical director. At Westbridge while Mary takes a vacation. Um, Westbridge is an organization, um, providing dual disorders treatment, um, and in the Northeast primarily. Um, and we've been the hosts of this show, um, for quite some time and you can find our w- podcasts on our website at www.westbridge.org. Today we're lucky to have Lauren Crabtree, um, MD as our guest. During his 40 years as a psychiatrist, Dr. Crabtree has helped adolescents and adults with serious mental illnesses in outpatient, inpatient, and residential settings. He's the co-founder and medical director of Project Transition, which consists of six therapeutic village programs located throughout the greater Philadelphia region. Project Transition, or PT, is a highly specialized program for people who have felt failed by the mental health system. Over the past 26 years, PT has worked with over 1,000 individuals with personality disorders, co-occurring disorders, and other complex psychiatric difficulties. Dr. Crouchy received his training at Yale and University of Pennsylvania. He has served as a clinical faculty member at several Philadelphia-area medical colleges and has published over 20 articles and presents to many professional academic, consumer and family audiences. Dr. Crabtree has been intensively trained in D B T dialectical behavioral therapy and is a recipient a recent recipient of a national Lily Reintegration Award. Welcome Doctor Crabtree or Lauren.
3: Well thank you. Mark, I had a hunch it wasn't Mary, even though you do have an accent.
2: Yeah, and we come from different part of the Bronx. <laughs> okay. So um Lauren, tell me a little bit about Project Transition.
3: Well as you know I I thought a lot about how to even go about answering that without sounding like I'm reading from one of our brochures. But I gotta say something. So I, I I'll just just try to make a statement. We we're a full spectrum integration of uh of treatments, uh all that we know of. Psychosocial rehab and recovery Uh, movement entities, as we understand them, and supervise living in an apartment village in which we use therapeutic community uh, concepts of the, uh, not so much as structure, but as we're all in this together, you can't do it alone, you can't do it alone, you can't do it alone, I can't do it alone, but together we can do it.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of emphasis on that group um, um, strength that comes. There's tremendous um, emphasis media on that. that. Mm-hmm. And and who does it serve? Well, we
3: worked right, right from the beginning. Uh, what we we defined ourselves as wanting to help people who simply had been given up on, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, we've been around 26 years. People were co- people who, do, who wouldn't uh, just go along with treatment and do well. Were called treatment-resistant uh, treatment failures. Uh, they were difficult to place. Uh, they were a headache for people, both economically and clinically. And we sort of reached out for them on a one one at a time basis. Sort of with the philosophy: if if someone has has lost all hope, why don't you give us a shot? Because we haven't. Mm -hmm.
2: And um, so um, does it tend to be um, people from across the socioeconomic spectrum? Well, it does
3: now. When we started out, uh, we started out in the private sector. There were a lot of private pay. And in those days, uh, what was called indemnity insurance, we were trying to avoid hospitals. But that that, uh, gave way over the years. We we were always heterogeneous and happened to believe in that. We would not have, never do we look for a a particular diagnosis, uh, but rather people who have been failed by past treatment or feel failed by past treatment. Usually with, well, the average person's had 12 hospitalizations, sometimes for years, Uh, so... That was, the, that was who we were looking to work with, and uh, that isn't all we work with. We work with people who are less profoundly uh, hopeless uh, because we've developed the services we have, and, of course, people who have a relentless problem or who at an impasse can come to us before we're a last resort.
2: Yes. Um, and what, what's the location of um, Project Transition and the setting?
3: well the uh we're located in uh four counties, including philadelphia county the others uh, being Bucks County, Montgomery County, and Bergs county. we have our what our model is is to find and this is not necessarily easy, but it's just wonderful when it happens a rentor, an apartment village, you know the kind that has uh, multiple buildings. Uh, with with units, say three or four to a floor, maybe, mm-hmm. and uh, that has multiple buildings so that our folks can be scattered around. Uh, we rent perfect of transition rents from that that realtor, and we are fully responsible for the upkeep of that apartment and any damage that occurs, and so forth. So we're good renters, and of course, you know, we're regular uh, payers. Uh, they don't, don't have those headaches.
2: Have- You'll have a a set of apartments within a larger um, housing community. Yes, but they're
3: not near each other. So that, for example, one of our sites, say, that has four apartments on a given floor. One of those may be a project transition apartment. The other three would be ordinary renters who, in most instances, don't even know that the three members are part of project transition. We have no signs. They have yep. no badges or banners. And as far as anyone's concerned, they're simply renting. Uh, that's an important part of our construct because remember who I said we were looking for, people who are hopeless that have been given up on. Mm-hmm. And we put them in this very high-demand environment in which their neighbors are not mental health people, uh, are just ordinary people. And yeah. it, it uh, the demands on their... Behavior are rather considerable from, the, from day one. Uh, now, of course, they are not that far from being able to visit someone else's apartment because it is within the complex. And then two or three apartments are rented in that complex and converted to offices and congregation areas where we have, you know, like our daily morning meeting and the various therapies
2: and workshops that we provide throughout the day. And how many um, um, participants um, I'm not sure if you call them participants?: or Well clients, we call them so mm-hmm. um, Do you serve in any at any one time? Right I. I'm,
3: I'm glad you mentioned about what we call them because it's an important piece of language. We actually call them members, and mm-hmm. the reason for our selection of that word is because of our uh, belief that membership or feeling like you belong somewhere outside yourself is a crucial and often overlooked part of recovery. So we call it members. What we do is rent approximately seven apartments with three members in each. Mm -hmm. So a typical branch would have 21 members and a full complement of staff that will provide all services, the full spectrum of services that I mentioned earlier, right there in that apartment village. which has has many advantages. So, those offices are the congregation areas that people come to. Uh, you know, we have a pager systems so that people can be in ready contact twenty four seven. And it's in that setting then that we live out this drama of recovery as we understand it.
2: Well, let me ask you a bit more about that. The um, how do you understand um, how in what ways people at Project Transition get better?
3: Well, well. first of all, that beats me. I've often wondered uh, how, how do you account for uh, persons that, that have been failed so often and are so filled with hopelessness and helplessness and despair coming to a, a place like this, even staying, let alone getting well. So, uh, miracle number one is that people come, and and that it works initially. That is to say, people don't simply get there and say, "Well, see you later." Or, you know, two thirds of our folks have uh, co-occurring disorder, uh, psychiatric, serious mental illness, and addiction. Yes. They don't just run down the street and and, and uh, relapse. Uh, and part of it uh, from the get-go is that we try to design an environment that. Have, has been identified by folks we've talked to, many, many folks, with serious mental illness. Someday, when all this hell is over, where do you wish you would end up? Mm. And in our experience, no one said, someday I hope I end up in a halfway house or, or or anything like that. They, uh, Not that those aren't useful stepping stones for some, yeah. but they will all say, well, someday I hope I have an apartment of my own or or an apartment with someone or a home. Mm -hmm. with alone or with someone. So our concept is, well, if that's where you hope to end up, why don't we treat you, train, you know, work with you from a skill standpoint and encourage you exactly where you hope to end up so that we don't have to worry about whether you can generalize skills if we put you in restricted environments and then expect you to handle challenges that are overwhelming.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: It's sort of counterintuitive, When people first see it, say, what? You're doing that? And you go home at night? Uh, But there's a holding environment, we use that phrase sometimes, that's very heavily influenced by relationship beliefs and this belonging that we emphasize, that we're in it together. And, you know, our staff are are enormously friendly and caring. I know everyone is. Uh, But that sets a tone. There's something in the atmosphere. And then after, and the other theme is that the peer group, the the other members, uh, by and large, I don't mean everyone's in shape to do it every day, sure. Uh, but but the peer group is really a very much re- uh, in the recovery model and know that reaching out and giving to others is part of their healing. So there's this climate of inclusion that makes it makes for, for that first step to take place, which I think is pretty amazing. And, mm-hmm. I mean, what I ex- would explain, that we're a long-haul concept. I mean, our average intensive membership phase is about nine months, seven to nine months. But that's a little misleading, although that's correct. And, by the way, we call that the therapeutic community. That would be the 21 full members plus full staff but we're also staffed for what we call the therapeutic village, which is for people who have left intensive and instead of going to some other treatment services, which is the general model here anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, we have them simply diminish the intensity and frequency of contact with with us and with their peer community, but they don't lose it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of, what allows for growth and development take, to take place, and for the baby steps that are sometimes necessary if someone's going to work towards greater
2: emancipation. I absolutely agree with you. At, at, at Westbridge, we, you know, we have slightly different language, but the same thing. Um, members are called participants, really, post- and uh-huh. there's right. a long um, um, membership in the organization um, and a sense of belonging that's very so right. important to engage people. We're coming up for a break, um, and after the break, we'll speak a little more um, in detail. Okay, thanks so much.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: if you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office you need the all-new ozone light it's as simple as changing your light bulbs the ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb it screws in most standard light sockets but it's not a normal light bulb it's coated with titanium dioxide it's completely safe but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria mold spores and neutralizes odors just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb if you have smokers if you have allergies if you have pet odors mold or mildew you need the ozone light it will wipe them out and you have our word if you are not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home simply return it for a full refund here's the number to call to order
5: 800-380-4259 800-380-4259 save up to 100 now 800-380-4259 800-380-4259
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
2: So welcome back. This is actually Mark Green, uh, Medical Director of Westbridge, standing in for Mary Woods, um, having a well-deserved vacation. And um, I'm here today with Dr. Lauren Crabtree. Um, So, Lauren, um, just before we move on to the uh, next segment, I did want to ask you what experiences early on in your career um, informed the conception of Project Transition.
3: Well, that's a a really interesting question. Uh, um, As I think back, I'd have to like start, I suppose it should be earlier since I'm a psychiatrist, but I think of my residency mm-hmm. when I was first called upon to represent healing or something to yeah. my very first, what in those days were called patients. And as a physician, we were proud of that and felt caringly about that so um, I may slip into that language, and i don 't mean any offense to those who don 't want to be called patients, but back then, I had patience, and I had zeal i had i think they called it therapeutic zeal mm-hmm. but what i also and and I, and I definitely promoted hope you know i I absolutely know that, and mm-hmm. I also must have believed that hope can carry someone that someone could borrow my hope during a time when they were not uh, full of hope themselves. Uh, Although I didn't think of that consciously, it's just the way I was. Mm. I was an enthusiast. I believed in therapy. I believed in growth. I'd been in an analysis, and although I say I failed at two of them, I also (laughs) knew I had grown a great deal from both of them. Uh, The other thing that's odd about this is, you know, zeal and hope promoting sound pretty grand, but I was also extremely aware that I didn't know a thing about how to get anybody well. Mm. It seemed like my training was all about how to name people and call people things. And I'll give you a little quick example. My very first patient I was handed to by the resident who was going on in his career, and so I inherited this patient. who had been there quite a long time with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. She's sure. a very... Simple person and and pleasant to be with. Uh, The issue was she claimed she had no schizophrenia whatsoever. It did not relate to that title at all. Of course, we had the word denial. Uh, She claimed she was an alcoholic, and if we would just let her go to meetings, she knew she could heal and get well. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I knew that she needed to be confronted about her illness, although I didn't quite understand it all. So I tried very hard to to listen to her request without granting it at first. But then I had her husband come in, which was another odd thing to do in those days. It was, yeah. Uh, well, I almost lost my residency about eight times. If you ever want to have a really fun program, have Crafty present on the ten ways he almost lost his residency. <laughs> but this was one of them. I brought her husband in which in the analytic era, you know, was a bit sacrilegious. Yes, it was. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I know what's wrong with my wife. She's an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, fully I do. They both are in denial. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. Would you be willing to take her to some meetings? He said, of course. So uh, even though she was so psychiatrically ill that she shouldn't have been granted passes, I did it. Mm -hmm. So I sent her to these meetings. And when she came back, she would come back beaming. You know, she was so filled up, and I met with her, and it wasn't long before her psychosis, uh evidence of her psychosis completely disappeared, and she appeared to be without psychotic symptoms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, assumed that, of course, how could psychiatry be wrong about her? She clearly wasn't only alcoholic. She tried to explain to me that she learned that a lot of people that have alcoholism go through times when their thinking isn't right, and that uh, she really thanked me for giving her a chance to get well. And she did, and I was about to discharge her, as they called it. And I always had this, this curiosity, which was, by the way, you know, I'm a resident. Could you yeah. tell me why you think you got well? Was there any way I helped you? How was I helpful to you? I want to know if I had anything to do with your voyage. And she thought and thought and thought, and she finally said, you know, first of all, you did seem to care. Yeah. You kept coming. Uh, I was one of the only residents actually scheduled people in those days. So I came at a regular time, and I was always there, and I was always friendly and kind. So I'm waiting, you know, but what about my great insights or something? Never mentioned. mention. He said, and then you finally listened to me about my alcoholism and let me find what I needed to get well. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a, a lesson that I've clearly never forgotten. has so many uh, layers to it. But I had that kind of combination of, of what I called zeal, and also this other level, like, I don't really know how to do this. So not only am I going to listen to you, my patient, but I need help.
2: Right. Uh,
3: I, I felt There's I needed a humility, help. So I,
2: a humility and also a real respect for the natural healing process.
3: Well, I, right. So I brought him in and then I worked with, you know, right away I would bring families in because I figured they could help me. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize they were thought of as the enemy. I thought they were colleagues of mine that wanted their offspring or their family member to get well. Other staff I would bring in, uh, you know, to to, uh, process things or talk to someone that was difficult. Sometimes I brought some of their peers in. Mm -hmm. And this was all just done out of desperation or something, you know, that I really wanted someone to get well. And I knew that I was insufficient, but I didn't have low self-esteem. I was confident that by doing this, it was going to work. Yeah. So it was that that odd combination of knowing that growth and development can happen and knowing that that no one person should be thought of as central, no one discipline should Mm -hmm. be thought of as the way. So I was like, a, and
2: also an idea that it, it takes a village. That it's not it just about you and the magic of some process in a room. You know, the person's recovery takes place right. outside in the world, exactly. um, and that um, it really you have to include family and a broader peer group. Um, that really comes through in that original story and seems to be a bedrock of Project Transition and.
3: Oh, it was. And also, you know, another thing, since I know that you're interested in addiction and alcoholism. By the way, Project Transition's primary mission is to work with SM, serious mental illness. It just so happens that two-thirds have a co-occurring addiction. But we never, you know, we don't market, if you wish, for addiction. Uh, we don't, uh, But we have this enormous investment in it, obviously, for those reasons. But anyway, because I had this very positive experience with this strange recovery from this first patient, I had another patient right around the same time who was also, well, she was looking back, bipolar and psychotic and called schizophrenic. And I had a great relationship with her, and I thought I helped her. Uh, She did get well uh, rather dramatically, uh, was a very good Uh, Experience And then she began to teach. She was really active in AA. Uh, She was one of these natural enthusiasts that ran meetings and everything. And I didn't know anything about AA in those days. But it was clear after these two experiences, this AA must be really potentially helpful. I wish I had something like that for my patients who weren't addicts or alcoholics. But anyway, she said, well, gee, you're so open. Can... We have a branch here at this hospital. It was a very prestigious Ivy League hospital. So I naively said, sure, why not? I'll find out what the schedule is and see what time a room is open. So I did, and sure enough, this gang of folks came by and started meeting in conference room C, which I knew was available. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't long before somebody discovered that this had happened. That was part of my, the 10 ways that Crabtree almost lost his residency. I had no clue that there was a war going on, which is not even over. Uh, It it isn't in in Project Transition, but it is not. and, And the war was the absolute distrust between the two groups. So psychiatrists were totally mistrustful of AA. AA was totally mistrustful of psychiatry. And here I bring them in without clearance, because it sounded so healing. So that, that was the kind of thing, if you wish. You know, I'm kind of a Mr. Magoo bungler, and, <laughs> and, uh, and bungle into many fortunate opportunities, because my partners have tended to be uh, awesome, like AA in that example, or this mm-hmm. father in the first example, and just my colleagues.
2: Well I have. back to this this a little bit later this uh um, distrust between groups um I think it's important for um recovery in in, in general but um as we I could just ask you in the work with dual disorders um you know, could you say a little bit about what kinds of problems these terms describe and how they develop, and some idea of a com- a con- your concept of a combined recovery.
3: Sure. Um, I'd be happy to try to do that. Well, you are borrowing from uh, the term dual diagnosis, as is often used in our trade, meaning a psychiatric illness and a substance abuse disorder, um, since so many of our folks have both, and since we were always devoted in our thinking to the idea that we were working with one person but we were working in different ways, we never really conceptualized one of our uh, members as, oh, here's an addict with a little mental illness or here's a mental illness with a little addiction. Mm. Uh, We never got into which should you stop first, uh, which should you address first. Because if one human being is struggling, and we care to call them those two things, and you're going to try to help the human being, you're going to try to help everything. Mm -hmm. That's where the combined idea comes in, that really, um, why choose? Uh, Many of our folks, in fact, have been through very uh, unpleasant experiences where psychiatric facilities kick them out. Because they drink or drug and won't stop, and of course then they try to get referred to addiction places, and they get the same yeah. issue. They go to there, they get confronted, they get symptomatic, so and to you, out the, the door. So
2: the, the idea of a combined recovery is almost um, um, a position against being the, um, the sort of simplistic. Exclusivity of either psychiatry or addiction.
3: Absolutely,
2: and just treating the person as a whole and absolutely leapfrog their difficulties. Absolutely. We'll come back after the um, next um, commercial break. Sure.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celestia Rainisi's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any.
5: Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.
2: So this isn't Mary. Um, This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge and work with Mary Woods. Um, And this is part of our series of um, One hour Time, which looks at various issues in the addictions field. Um, And back with Lauren Crabtree, the founder and medical director at Project Transition. So, Lauren, we were just talking about... um, Recovery in its fullest sense, and your mission to really reach out um, to or invite um, people to um, enter into a recovery process who felt somewhat disenfranchised from and hopeless um, in their dealings with their mental health world. Um, now, in particular, you've worked with many people diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, um, and many health professionals think this is very difficult to treat and. Um, I think people with borderline personality disorder um, experience a lot of alienation and um, lack of listening and um, difficulty in the psychiatric world. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Um, can you tell me a bit about what characterizes the disorder and how is it how is it experienced by the person?
3: Okay. Um, so in other words, like a portrait, What what's it mean when we say borderline personality yes, what is, disorder?
2: What is borderline personality Yeah.
3: Well, uh, I I guess I could try to describe a a person. 80% are female, 20% male, or something of that order, Mm -hmm. uh, according to most studies. So I'd like um, to use the word she, uh, because it's so awkward to say him, her, and it's it's usually she. Uh, A person that gets this diagnosis will tend to be Um, A a young adult um, who will come in with enormous problems with self-control that will show itself in a number of areas like explosiveness, like neediness, like uh, med-seeking activity, like self-injury, like cutting oneself, a lot of preoccupation with suicide, but the cutting often, more often than not, is not really to die, but for some form of relief that defies common sense. Uh, these folks can also have many other self-injurious activities besides cutting, but that's the one that's most mystifying I think, for, for and tends to stand for borderline personality disorder, though in a way it really shouldn't. Uh, these folks are enormously chameleon-like. I used to say that They use the yellow pages uh, for which self-abuse shall I be this year. So at times they'll present with alcoholism, A, B, bulimia, C, conduct disorder, D, and on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, We used to call them an inner despair in search of a label. Uh, for, For years they had no label. My first patient that I had uh, only of my own, not the ones that I mentioned earlier, was a 15-year-old with this who taught me so, so much. <laughs> I saw her every day for a long time, and she, she just absolutely um, destroyed me as a mm-hmm. young professional yeah. because I worked so hard to help her, and I didn't realize that to the degree that that she was excited by anything That we were talking about, that would make her so uncomfortable that she would then go back up to the to the ward and cut herself. Mm. And it was uh, that kind of mystifying behavior, maddening behavior, uh, is what you so often see, uh, and and is characteristic of most places and staff. Uh, We're we're in an organization of. Residentials, for example, most of whom say, many of whom say, we don't want any of them. And if we have more than one, we're finished. Mm -hmm. And here we have roughly almost 50% of our folks have, as you know, access to personality disorder, name, borderline personality disorder, or something like it, like dissociative disorder and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. So we work with uh, right now if that's true we have approximately 70 people in our life today uh, in one or another of our branches that have this diagnosis so that is pretty remarkable. That Uh, is
2: pretty remarkable and and as you said you know um, years ago um, women generally with this disorder um, would come with seven different diagnoses or something and um, and through the uh, self-destructiveness that comes with the um, the anxiety and excitement that they can experience, um, the units or residential programs can be really thrown into a great deal of confusion and distress, oh, um, and absolutely. staff can really uh, find themselves at each other um, a bit. So, um, how do you? How do you think that the, um, we'll say the the woman in particular, or or the per, the person with this um, experiences the world in a in well, as I've learned it, and this this was
3: key to being able to work uncomfortably comfortably, however to put it, uh, with persons with this diagnosis is um, I uh, I have. And I've been, I believe I've been taught this by my patients, by my mm-hmm. consumers who have, with whom I've worked over the years. I always seem to get a disproportionate number of referrals because I would say yes to this, uh, this situation, despite yeah. the fact that it was hugely challenging and often extremely distressing to me. Uh, there was something about the challenge of hanging in there with someone this difficult that actually drew me to them instead of away from them. Um, That's just an oddity of me, but that being so, I'm sure that that has something to do with why Project Transition developed uh, its attitude. Because if you look at our data and you look at how many people get hospitalized, that are members of Project Transition, almost none with all the other diagnoses get hospitalized, Mm. I'd say 20%. And if you look at how many people with this diagnosis get hospitalized while they're with us, 80%. Right. Uh, again, most places would say, for God's sakes, why well, do you put yourself through that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, also there'll be another hospitalization, sometimes multiple hospitalizations with this group, as because they often get addicted to hospitalizations, That's among right. other things. That's right. So you'd have to see something else. And I, I think what I would call it is... That the person with this diagnosis, especially in the early stage of it, when they're essentially just out of control, enormously self-absorbed, very seeking, med-seeking, people-seeking, insatiable, uh, experienced that way, and then this maddening, you know, why did you do that? I thought you said you wouldn't do it, and why, did, you know, why didn't you think before you acted mm. uh, this, this they're extremely sensitive uh to pain uh pain that would that many of us wouldn't even know was being inflicted mm-hmm. in this posture the the experience is one of being in jeopardy that this jeopardy uh my my friend and i scott that, with, with whom I present often on this topic we used to argue about it I call it annihilation like the sense of imminent annihilation. Mm. Well are you sure that's not a little hysterical, Lauren? Is that your word or their words? Well <laughs> it's their word. Uh, anyone with borderline personality disorder, if I say annihilation, they'll they'll nod yes.
2: It's right. a sense
3: of, of
2: threat. and it and it, and it conveys the bigness of the emotion. Right. But um, it becomes encompassing right.
3: yeah. so their this discomfort is overwhelming and once you see their symptoms as a solution to that, rather mm. than the problem, then, you're, you're, then you can start out. Because so in you're other able
2: words, to validate some of their experience, which um, enables them to begin to make sense or absolutely. talk to someone about them absolutely. how it makes sense.
3: I mean, even saying to someone early on, "By the way, I know when you when you cut yourself, uh, I know you accept the word hurt yourself." But I understand that it doesn't hurt, Mm -hmm. that it actually gives you a sense of relief. Well, sometimes a person will feel very reassured that someone can understand it because it's backwards. Yes, You know, everyone says, oh, you're so self-destructive, you're so... so the, yeah, and so, they agree. So with when the you mentioned with...
2: the sensitivity to pain earlier, right. um It's not it's not really that physical pain in that moment. Their the, the sensitivity to pain can actually be very low, but it's the um, enormity of the interpersonal distress that Absolutely. they can experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and drugs can have a particular um, panache for people with this issue. Well,
3: you know, I've often said that. Obviously, there are, th- there are medications you can use, uh, but it, it's almost—you uh, know—you're uh, almost flipping a coin. If if eighty percent of depressed people get better on any antidepressant, maybe twenty or thirty percent of persons with this diagnosis will respond favorably, and on
2: and on. Oh, There's I was no, thinking about—I was thinking about drugs like um, heroin or cocaine. Oh, those work.
3: Yeah. they
2: can they can be very particularly compelling um have you have you noticed a particular um effect with the opiates um in um people with borderline
3: personality disorder well uh, my impression is that they're enormously soothing mm-hmm. and uh, i mean it's easy to see how it could be a drug of choice
2: yeah. uh, how
3: about yours
2: I think very much though so. it surprises me how many um, nevertheless go for cocaine, which is so activating and um, right. really raises those feelings yes. of being yes. overwhelmed, but there's a sense of control, yes. and, um, uh, which, which I think can um, can be reassuring in itself, but the right. opiates is a particularly soothing feeling, I think, for many right. women with borderline personality disorder, and really Brings down that hyper vigilance and edginess, and the right. and provides some distance um, from the from the harshness. Um, do you have a particular approach with people with, with borderline personality Well, no, we have disorders?
3: we have a general approach, and we have of course some specific fa- favorites. But uh, you know, we've been at it since what did I say? Twenty six years, and we've mm-hmm. always had a fair number of persons with this. Yeah, and our our approach in general is is um, well, we you have a, you develop a relationship with with this person, mm-hmm. you help to validate so they understand that you understand that they're in pain, seeking a solution, so they're not naughty boys and girls who are cutting themselves and driving you nuts. Gotcha. In other words, it isn't about me or you; it's about them. And uh, in fact, if you say, well, don't you realize when you do this, your roommate gets upset, they will say, no, I did it Mm -hmm. to myself. So it's entirely self-absorption at the
2: start. So we'll come back to the last section in a moment. Um, Thanks so much. Pick up on this.
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness.
5: The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, Autism One. A conversation of hope through education and conversation. There is hope.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to
1: One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
2: Welcome back. This is Dr. Mark Green standing in for Mary Woods. Um let's get back to um Dr. Crabtree from um Project Transition. Um Lauren, you were just we were just talking a bit about your approach to borderline personality disorder and um wanted to say a bit more about self-management skills.
3: Well, I, I really think it's important because even though I'm talking about borderline personality disorder, I think from the very beginning we had a we saw this as an issue now, this is before psychiatric recovery was a, was a language we could use. And what we got interested in was I mean, once, a, once, use the term validated, once a person feels validated and they are willing to talk with you about what happens before an event, which often to them will seem like out of the blue. But over time, it becomes clear that there are things before an event and then there are steps you can take before an event. So, in other words, to self-manage your escalation or the fact that you're approaching relapse. Uh, And this would go across all diagnoses, but specific to to persons with borderline or, say, cutting, you can see how important that would be. The person then learns skills of self-management of their symptoms, and also you're trying to prepare them to manage their treatment in the future because uh, their their professionals of the future may or may not understand all this. So we want them to be intelligent consumers. And so, yes, uh, there are specific things that we are enamored with, like DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which has a manualized uh, workshop series teaching specific what they call dysregulation uh, skills so that uh, the person can work work really hard on alternatives to, say, cutting or to relapsing before they occur. A very important part of the growing sense of mastery that a person has as this develops over time. Also, there will be, in most instances, interruptions, and that's where the never-give-up-on-anyone comes in. That is our core value, and I think why we've been able to be successful with this population is that's our motto, never give up on anyone.
2: Well, so, I think that's so crucial to um, that sort of, it sort of con- it conveys a sense of hope and containment um, which che- which may, that the person may have experienced. May not have experienced before, but it enables people to really take a leadership role in their recovery rather than be um passed on from treatment facility to treatment facility feeling a failure right right um so so the uh so this is really um taking those um difficult moments and using them in a uh using them in a way which helps you learn about some of the triggers and learn some alternative skills and self-management Absolutely,
3: and that's a language that we use, the language of failure, which is so demoralizing. Oh, you failed again. It's what we use the term teachable moments from education. You know, what does this this event, which is negative, uh, what does it teach us about what could have been different now that we know what we know? Mm-hmm. So it'll be different next time. Yeah. And it, it, it changes the whole flavor of how one looks at things. So if someone gets hospitalized, that means they, that something went wrong and, and why wouldn't you relate to them as if they had a coronary or pneumonia? You know, so our gang will go over and visit and stay in touch and that kind of thing. And yeah. a person comes back and we get back to work.
2: Usually those hospitalizations, about, well,
3: if they occur brief by this time,
2: what do you think it is about um, many health systems which makes it difficult to see the kind of um, destructive acts which can occur in these in, in cyclical ways um, in people with borderline personality disorders? Um, what do you think it is about the mental health system which makes it so difficult for them to see that as a teachable moment and, and to uh, be so reactive yeah. to it?
3: Well, I have a, a lot of uh, thoughts about that. I'm sure you do, too. One, th- one thing I, um, I see, in and uh, I do a lot of work with NAMI groups, mm. and first is this, uh, there is a tremendous still isolation between providers of care and family. Uh, very often the family is still seen and, and, and can easily be experienced as being intrusive and a pain in the neck, but there's such an important potential ally and often mm. the ones who inherit the outcome. That's and they tend to experience being totally alienated from that process. I think that's a major they've, they've, flaw.
2: They they've been in it for the long term and are in it that, for the long
3: term. Right. That. That, absolutely. And um that I think why we chose our model where we bring a team together that provides everything. So as we don't use outside uh, services. Mm. We have you know, we have our own people doing psychosocial rehab, doing spirituality, doing treatment, you know, on-site doc, 15 hours a week, you know, uh, doing house calls, psychologists doing therapy, but the spotlight is not on that, but rather on living a, a better life in the presence of symptoms, which is the recovery vision and stuff. It's so much, uh, for for my way of thinking anyway, there's so much more immediate integration, coordination, and communication if you're with each other day after day after day, both formally and informally, as a staff, instead of separately, where it's so hard to contact one another and try to try to somehow integrate these things. Yeah. Uh, I think also that in, in so many services, there's an absence of an appreciation of what we think is central. Now, of course, this is arguable, but we happen to think that the that the not just Most people would agree that relationships are important. That's certainly not very much disputed. But uh, the idea that belonging to a social network is a separate skill from that, I think, has been overlooked. And we spend a lot of energy on on the idea of belonging. I use the example, you know, a person could go to church and immediately feel at home if they're fortunate, even though they don't know many people there because it feels like their church uh that's not the same as having a ton of people that you know at this church, uh, just using that as an example. That skill, the ability to self-generate network, social networks, is so apparent when someone with borderline personality disorder has the good fortune of, of, of being discharged from treatments, even some of the better ones, where they have restrictions for continued contact and stuff. There's a complete sense of loss of community that isn't looked at if you look at it as a pure medical model issue. Mm -hmm. If you see it as a social system issue, it's so much more obvious. Mm -hmm. And of course, we spend a lot of our energy on that idea. So is that at the end of Project Transition, we try not to use the word discharge, rather graduation. Mm -hmm. And remember when I said before, 21 beds is a therapeutic community? Well, We've invested in three additional beds because a lot of our folks can't afford, when they first uh, graduate from full membership, they can't afford a lease or they can't sign it because of their track record, so we do it and have three apartments, that's up to nine people that we're willing to house on their way out and maintain services and relationships with the community in which they, they experienced healing. The idea is that you never become an ex-member, but you simply be, graduate further and further away, and can come back, either really, formally or informally.
2: So this really comes back to that initial um, anecdote that you gave about um, one of your experiences as a resident. Um, you know, you're, you're emphasising the emphasising that, in contrast to, I think. Too much of the psychiatric world, um, you're, you have a certain humility where you say, you know, it's not all about psychiatry treatment, that's just a, a, a you know, we have an opportunity to accompany someone in their recovery in the real world, right. you know, where they're going to be forming a healing relationship, Right. and you're able to listen to their process and really learn from them in a way which is empowering and validating. Right. Listen, I, it sounds like we've reached the end of our program, I'm sorry to... Uh, that um, um, we have to go yeah this I'm is very exciting for, for me as well thanks so much Dr. Crabtree for Project Transition it was great having you on the show